Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi and this month I chatted to Hope Virgo, who's an author and campaigner, particularly around eating disorders. I heard about her own experience of anorexia and working towards recovery and the work she's been doing as a campaigner to improve access to effective eating disorder support. We discussed the frustrations that can come with campaigning, managing an eating disorder whilst being pregnant, and also what Hope does herself to manage her own well-being. So today I'm joined by Hope Virgo. Hi, Hope. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's so good to have you on the podcast. So Hope, I think we've worked together for quite a few years now. Um, You've done a lot to support us at the centre, and we've been really excited to see your campaigning journey grow um, so I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today to hear more about your story and the work that you're doing around eating disorders. Um, so I'm going to dive right in. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your own story. Yeah, no, definitely. So I um, so I developed an eating disorder when I was about 12, 13. Um, I didn't know at the time I had an eating disorder. Um, but looking back, I think there were kind of multiple things that uh, probably caused it to start so I when I was growing up I found it really difficult to express my emotions and really struggled um, with kind of feeling things um, we do know also with eating disorders there's more and more research coming out looking at the genetic aspect of eating disorders um, and then as well I was also sexually abused when I was 12 years old and for me it was like a combination of all of these moving parts that caused me to try and find other ways to cope um, and a really big thing for me was going through some form of abuse meant that I was kind of sitting with these feelings that there was something kind of categorically wrong with who I was and it was that part of me that I wanted to change so I didn't talk to anyone about it as you do as a child and probably as an adult as well when you're quite embarrassed and quite ashamed of what you're feeling and ended up looking kind of for other routes to go down and that was when I started restricting and kind of obsessively exercising and what I gradually began to realize over kind of the next couple of months was the more I did those behaviors, the better I was feeling about life. And it kind of offered that distraction, it numbed all the emotions. And it really just kind of, yeah, took me out of the reality of growing up and helped to just give me like a different sense of purpose and value within everything I was doing. Obviously at the time, I didn't really realize what I was doing was really, really dangerous. So I just kept doing these behaviors kind of time and time again, my brain chemistry got completely changed. and. I was kind of stuck in this place with this eating disorder without really understanding it. Um, Eventually, after kind of four years of hiding it from everyone around me, my school did intervene. um, And at that point, my mum took me to the doctor and then I was referred to CAMS. Um, I spent about six months there, but like a lot of people with eating disorders, it's really, really hard to accept that anything's the matter particularly when that behavior is giving you something that you feel like you need and it becomes so ingrained. And I do think as well nowadays, because a lot of people have quite a dysfunctional relationship with food and exercise, you then just think what you're doing is normal and what you're doing is fine. So then you keep going back to that behavior kind of as that coping mechanism time and time again. Um, So yeah, I spent six months as an outpatient, but nothing was really working and eventually um, was admitted to a mental health hospital and spent about a year kind of living there, learning a lot about food, exercise. But I think the biggest thing for me, apart from kind of obviously like feeding, my, kind of going through a feeding program as well, was having space to talk about what was going on and to understand 
how to communicate and to understand the eating disorder and what it was doing for me in that moment. Um, and then pretty much ever since then, I've been in an ongoing state of recovery. Um, physically, my body's like obviously healthy now and things like that. But with eating disorders, even though someone looks okay on the outside and maybe is eating, it doesn't mean that things are fixed. So I have had a lot of kind of work to still do kind of mentally to kind of challenge behaviors and to again kind of keep communicating when things feel really hard. Wow, thanks so much for sharing that with us. And you you speak really powerfully about um yeah why you ended up kind of taking on those behaviors and what what they were trying to achieve for you, I guess. Um, and I sort of think looking back now to your sort of 14, 15, 16 year old self, what do you think you needed at that time? What do you think would have helped? Did you did you get the help you needed? Yeah, I guess. So I'm, I'm only 32, but when I was growing up, I don't think people really talked about eating disorders at all and no one really understood them. And whilst I think it's an illness that's still massively stigmatized today, obviously the stigma when I was growing up was much, much higher as well, particularly with the lack of understanding, the lack of education um, around it. And I think people didn't know how to approach it a lot of the time. And when they did approach it with me, I was very kind of just not wanting to engage in it. Um, I remember the odd time that my mum would try and talk to me about my eating habits. I just got really, really frustrated and was like, no, I'm fine. Like, you don't understand. Like, this is what everyone does kind of thing. Um, but I do think that if someone had got in there kind of when I was maybe 13, before my kind of brain chemistry had started to change and before I'd kind of been going through like such a long period of kind of starvation, I think I potentially would have just wanted someone to be like, what's going on? Like, are you OK? How are you feeling? We know that eating disorders aren't really about the food, they're not about the exercise, they're not about body image, they're because something's going on for that person. And I think so often we lose sight of that and forget that it's a mental health issue. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think that would have been really, really useful. And then again, getting in there early and just having that kind of professional support and that intervention at an earlier point, I think would have, yeah, give, probably given me a better chance of having like a quicker chance of recovery as well. Yeah, thanks, that's, that's really helpful insight. So obviously, you know, now you're really well known as a mental health campaigner, competing around eating disorders, lots of other things. Um, and could you just talk us through sort of the last few years, um, what you've been doing as a campaigner? Um, yeah, so I think I've been campaigning. I think about this earlier, actually, probably like four or five years now, which seems like such a long time. And when I started doing it, I definitely think, didn't think I'd still be doing it right now. I actually probably thought naively I would have kind of finished doing what I was doing with it, made some change and then kind of moved on to something else. Um, but obviously stuff takes a lot longer than that as well to kind of challenge the system as well. Um, so yeah, I basically kind of split my time between doing a lot of work in schools. So particularly with kind of young people, but also carers as well, getting them to understand about eating disorders, kind of exercise addiction, disordered eating, and then like getting them to work out how they can support themselves, how they can support others. Um, and also just to try and normalize some of these conversations around eating disorders. I, I kind of mentioned a moment ago about the stigma with eating disorders, and it's, it's definitely something that we see on a day-to-day -day basis, kind of that people do think it's a choice, someone being difficult, like something that only affects white teenage underweight girls. And for me, a huge part of my message is around realizing that actually eating disorders can be just hidden completely in plain sight. And so much of the time, we have no idea when someone's struggling. And it's those people who then again, find it harder to access services and support. So need that kind of, yeah, awareness around that to then challenge that and change it. Um, and then, yeah, alongside that, um, 
I've got a campaign called Dump the Scales, which is all around kind of scrapping BMI when it comes to diagnosis, but also at the moment doing a lot of work with that around funding um, and trying to do some stuff on education, trying to, to kind of tackle issues around the workforce. Um, and then kind of most recently off the back of that campaigning work, doing a lot of work to push back on the recent calorie legislation. Um, and I think the frustrating thing, if I'm honest, is that um, we know there's a huge issue with eating disorders. And when you're kind of on working on the ground, you see it on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think like my inbox, probably like other campaigners or people who work in this space is like inundated daily with just hundreds of messages from people who can't get support or treatment and who really want to get well, but just don't know what to do about it. And I just don't understand why we're not tackling stuff like eating disorders as a matter of urgency. And we're just not putting the money into them actually that we really, really need. So a lot of the stuff at the moment is just around trying to shift that so that people do see this as something that needs to be tackled. Because I honestly just don't think in 2022, people should be dying of eating disorders when we know it's a treatable and preventable illness. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I mean, there's so much there I want to ask you about and talk about. Um, I think it's really interesting, the frustration that you are expressing around kind of how long it takes things to change. And obviously we're working as an organisation rather than as an individual. And so the challenges are different, but I think we can definitely testify to that frustration mm. that sometimes you feel like you're saying literally, here are the things we need to do. <laughs> Why aren't we doing them? Why are we essentially just allowing people to suffer um, from what are treatable and preventable um, conditions to a greater or lesser degree? I'm not saying we're going to get rid of mental illness, but there are definitely things we can be doing and we're not always seeing them being done and not at the pace of change that we want, right? Especially as you say, when you're seeing people like who, who for, for whom this is a daily current reality. Um, there's so much I could ask you about, but just quickly, um, you mentioned dump the scales and um, campaigning to get rid of BMI. Can you just talk us through really quickly what, what that looks like and just a bit more about that campaign? Yeah, no, definitely. So I guess there's background to it. So I, um, in 2015, 2016, I relapsed um, with my eating disorder. Um, it was following kind of a bereavement in my family and I was really, really struggling to process that and kind of process what had happened. And I struggled probably for, I, I wanna say only about four months, which was a very, felt like a really long time for me um, and was kind of so stuck in my head. Like I didn't really know what to do about it. Eventually my mum like really boldly kind of came up to London and was like, what is going on? Like, what are you doing? You need to sort this out. And um, so I ended up referring myself to services um, went to an appointment and obviously wasn't underweight. So there was nothing that they could offer me at that service. And I left the appointment and just felt just so fed up with the whole system. I felt like I'd been completely kind of misunderstood. I felt like people only would kind of take me seriously if I looked a certain way. And luckily for me, I kind of had had a lot of treatment in the past. And so kind of used a lot of the kind of coping mechanisms that I'd learned when I was in hospital um, kind of yeah, just like eight, five, seven, eight years before that. And then also I do have a good support network around me. So like friends and family kind of really kind of got together and were like, right, how can we get through this? Like, what are we going to do? And like really practical support as well, just around like texting around meal times, kind of checking in with me, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so I managed to kind of pull it back kind of quite quickly over the next year. But then when I started speaking up about what I'd been through, 
I just began to realize that this isn't something that just happens to me, but there is just so many people every single day who just cannot get support or treatment because they're not underweight. And obviously this isn't something that just affects people with anorexia, it's every single type of eating disorder. You just can't get that support and it's just a complete injustice. And so I launched the campaign, I guess from a societal point of view, I wanted society to understand that someone can look okay and still have an eating disorder. And that just because someone's eating, it doesn't mean that they're totally fixed. And then from a government's kind of an NHS standpoint, I really wanted to make sure that we had the right funding going into services so that we could completely scrap BMI and stop judging the severity of an eating disorder based on BMI. Um, and I think it's it's really hard because we've I've had like a lot of conversations over the last couple of years around what we could put in place instead of BMI. And obviously, in some places, you have to weigh someone with an eating disorder. But doing it based on BMI just doesn't work. And it's so invalidating for that individual. Um, and we did, I think the other frustration is there was a lot of progress being made kind of prior to the pandemic. And then obviously the pandemic happened and then eating disorder cases kind of escalated. And then because of the lack of funding and the lack of services, it's like, actually, we have to have a cutoff point. So what was supposed to be something that we could scrap all together with BMI, particularly in the NICE guidance, is now something that actually unless we invest into services we just can't scrap it thank you for sharing that and i yeah it, it's so incredibly frustrating and um worrying concerning um, all of the other words just to hear hear what's going on and this is the reality that we're still facing in 2022 i think it's interesting as well because obviously we're talking very specifically about eating disorders and eating disorder services um but also this is just feels like a message that we're hearing again and again mm. that um, people with lots of different mental health needs are presenting to services, are, are coming to services, seeking help and being told you're not ill enough yeah. um, or in some situations you're too ill. And I mm. think um, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, I think it's one of the hardest parts of the job and also the most motivating hearing from people who um, are, are going through this and are saying, you know, the service is not working for me. This mental health system is not working for me. Um, yeah, and until everyone gets the help they need, we we can't we can't stop campaigning essentially. Yeah, no, it's true. And I think you're right, it's not, it isn't just eating disorders that are affected as well. It's it's so many people. And I think that what we've seen in the pandemic definitely is you do have many more people with eating disorders, like you said, kind of being turned away for being not ill enough or being too sick. And that's the kind of disconnect. And it's just it feels really messy out there at the moment. The amount of people with eating disorders kind of ending up on general hospitals kind of being tube fed and then it's like there's no psychological or no psychiatric support available for them so what they're going to do just get discharged in six weeks and then they're going to kind of be on this revolving door of kind of like I'm in and out of services because I'm no one's actually tackling the root issue yeah it's incredibly like harrowing to think that that's the reality for people right now I think yeah. um, it doesn't take a lot to realize that that's not an effective way to be running services and arguably it's I mean it's definitely not a humane way to be treating citizens in our country so I know you hear from people as you said earlier on uh who for whom this is a daily reality and I, I'm just kind of interested to know like what have you been hearing recently has the picture changed sort of during and um after the pandemic um or you know where we're at now um yeah what are you hearing from people yeah there's there's a real desperation out there actually um from kind of carers of people who were struggling but also from individuals themselves who were just so desperate to get well 
and just don't know how to or don't even know where to start. Um, people who are on, yeah, just so many waiting lists, like contacting their MPs, contacting kind of CQCs, like just to try and get some sort of support. And I think it's, it's really difficult because there's no support in the NHS. So then people are having to kind of find money to pay to go private. And then again, like a lot of the time with private treatment, while some of it's really good, we also know that some of it doesn't publish their outcomes. So again, it's like actually there's kind of taking a little bit of risk spending all that money when they're not even sure it's going to work. Um, and it, it's really, really sad. I think more we know that more people are struggling at the moment. And whilst this was obviously a huge issue before the pandemic and the services weren't functioning properly or and couldn't meet the demand, now what was a really overstretched system is just one that the people with eating disorders is just completely broken. And the other thing I think that's quite scary um, but also quite interesting as well is because of the rise, we've also seen a lot more um, kind of people in the workforce who are obviously burning out, who are really struggling, who are getting frustrated by the kind of lack of funding, the constraints in the NHS. So a lot of them are then going private. And then again, we've got kind of gaping holes within the NHS for supporting people with eating disorders, particularly in that kind of psychiatric um, yeah, support space as well. Um, so I think a lot of staff are also finding it really, really difficult to navigate and feeling really guilty. And I think I was also thinking about this recently. We often talk about issues around kind of lack of understanding on the front line and particularly kind of with GPs and in kind of A&E departments. And whilst we know that's a huge issue, I don't always think it's right that we fixate just on that, because actually we know that yes, there's a lack of understanding, but there's nowhere for them to send people to. So it's not actually often their fault that they're turning people away from services. And I think too often we get fixated on that without actually embracing the wider kind of systemic problems that we're seeing. 100%. And it's something that um, we at the centre have been campaigning for a lot is around this workforce piece. And um, we know that I think it was the long-term plan was meant to kind of be addressing this. But I think what we're seeing so far is that we're simply not recruiting um, enough enough people into the mental health workforce to really meet the demand. And I think that was uh, my understanding is that that was the case pre-pandemic. And now, obviously, as we were forecasting, we are seeing a big rise in people um, needing mental health support directly as a result. And so, as you say, there just aren't the people mm. to, to meet the needs, which is, again, really distressing. It's definitely something that makes me angry, this idea that people are um, seeking help and being told you're too ill or you're not ill enough or sure, we can help you in, in a year. Um, and, and that people who are really ill and their carers who haven't to look after them are then having to do so much research to try and see where on earth can I get help? You know, yeah. people who are at, feeling at their worst at that point um, are, are then having to, to scour the internet to see, like, where can I actually get some help? And it just feels like, yeah, the system just isn't working. But wanted to talk specifically about something you mentioned earlier, which was the campaigning around calorie labelling. Um, on menus in restaurants because obviously that uh, legislation came at the beginning of April and you've been talking quite a lot about that we published your open letter on it um could you just tell us a little bit more about that and the conversation around that yeah so um the government last must have been last summer actually now they published um their obesity strategy um, and within that they talked about how they wanted to put calories um on menus and as yeah, a way to tackle obesity, they thought it was going to do, but also um, to try and make people make kind of healthier informed choices. 
Um, so I originally kind of pushed back on it last year, actually, um, and had kind of a number of meetings with various MPs with Public Health England at the time um, to kind of share my concerns. But rather frustratingly, there wasn't any kind of budging from that end around it. Um, and I just, yeah, so then, then obviously then it was published um, and came into force on the 6th of April this year. And I honestly think it's just such a dangerous policy. I think firstly, what they want to do with it and are claiming that it will kind of help people inform kind of more healthier lifestyle choices. We just know that's, that's not going to work. We know that you can't tell the health of a product based on how many calories are in it because they're completely different aspects of it. It will also induce huge amounts of fear and anxiety when people go out for dinner, whether you've got an eating disorder or not. It's likely that conversations will kind of start to happen around calories. People will pick the lowest calorie option or they'll maybe kind of compensate throughout the day so they can have that option that they want to have um, as well. And then obviously for people affected by eating disorders, we know that um, going into a menu where there is calories labeled everywhere just isn't going to be a safe space for them. Um, and then beyond that, obviously, 25% of people who start calorie counting will develop an eating disorder. So the kind of collateral damage and fallout of a piece of legislation like this is going to be absolutely huge. Um, and within that, like I said, kind of not doing what they want um, to do as well. So recently have been calling on the government to um, bring forward the evaluation. So they have they do the evaluation within five years. Um, but I'm pushing for it to happen in the next 18 months, just because I think obviously we're going to see the fallout in the next 18 months. So we might as well get on there and just evaluate it and then we can get it scrapped. Um, I'm also making sure that all menus have a no calorie menu option as well, um, which again, we're encouraging people to go to restaurants and say, actually, can I not have a calories written on my menu? Can I have a calorie free menu? However, they want to phrase it. And although that would be really good for people affected by eating disorders, it will also make restaurants actually start to realize, actually, our clients don't want this. Like they want to have a space where they feel safe to come and eat. And then finally, the other big ask is to just scrap calorie counts on children's menus altogether. I was literally appalled the other weekend when I took my nephew out um, and we went to a cafe down the road. Um, it was a chain, but it had calories like plastered all over the kids menus and we just wanted a piece of cake and you're just like that is not okay and it's just it does it really makes you think I walked into another cafe recently and it was like adults need x amount of calories every single day and I'm like actually that's not accurate like adults need a different amount of calories every day like we're not all the same it's the whole thing is just yeah ridiculous and I still can't get my head around where yeah where they got the research from and who they spoke to to actually develop this um so yeah kind of yeah constantly pushing back at that at the moment and I think again within that it is it, again it's really sad like I talk often about this kind of normalization of eating disorder culture and this for me is just yeah. another step forward in normalizing this kind of completely disordered relationship with food yeah I, I totally agree with you and, and it's really interesting I've, I've never struggled with an eating disorder but it was very interesting for me to go into restaurants and suddenly see yeah all of these all of these calories popping up and um there's been some really interesting conversations out there going on and I know you've been having a lot of them um around sort of you know why are we doing this because the evidence from I think it's the US where they've had this in place before is that for people who don't have eating disorders um it doesn't seem to actually be very effective people still go on to choose what they want to have yeah. 
whether or not um, it's a it's a high amount of calories. And I've observed that behavior in myself, seeing calorie counts and thinking, well, but I want this one. So the research out there suggests that it's both completely ineffective for what it's meant to be doing. And obviously, like as we are seeing already all over the place anecdotally, very, very difficult for anyone who has any kind of disordered relationship with eating. Um, it, it just feels like a really, really flawed attempt to solve a problem. Um, it, it's not even achieving the behaviour change it wants to see. Yeah. And as well, it's being super damaging to loads of the population. And as you say, it's, it seems like a really bizarre way of encouraging people to, in theory, be healthier with their food. Mm. Because instead of actually encouraging people to have a healthy relationship with food, it's, it's literally encouraging the opposite. Um, so it seems flawed on so many levels. And um, I'll definitely link you, as you said, you wrote a blog for us last year, um, kind of calling this into question, which I'll link to, and also the, the open letter that um, you published a few weeks back. But thank you for sharing that with us. So I also wanted to talk briefly about, obviously, for people who follow you on social media, they will know that you are pregnant at the moment, which is <laughs> very exciting. Um, and obviously that comes with all its own joys and challenges for anyone. And I know you've been speaking about um, how, how that's going for you as someone um, in recovery from eating disorder. And uh, yeah, I just wondered if you wanted to tell us a little bit more about that and how you found it. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I guess firstly, it was, it was completely unexpected. <laughs> so I wasn't planning to get pregnant this quickly after getting married. Um, and yeah, it was kind of in the life plan for probably like two, three years time. Um, but these things happen. And I think, yeah, I think for me, it was also really unexpected because I, I knew from my past that there were huge issues around kind of fertility. And when you've had an eating disorder, sometimes your hormones are kind of all over the shot anyway. So it's, it can be really, really difficult for some people. Um, so in, in that sense, even though it was unexpected, I was also really grateful and kind of relieved that I could have a child. Um, but it was it was terrifying. I remember um, so I found out probably like week eight or nine or something ridiculous. Um, and yeah, was just so shocked. And it was just like, how is this possible? I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I was just so scared about what it was going to look like. And a lot of that, I think, was due to kind of all the emotions I was feeling. I had a lot of fear around it. But I also was like, how can I like look after a child and have a child growing in me when like, I'm just not always great at looking after myself. Um, and then within that, even though my eating disorder is not about kind of body image or anything like that, actually, like watching your body change on a kind of day-to-day -day basis is, is actually really hard. And I sometimes feel like that sounds like such a ridiculous thing to say, but I just, yeah, I kind of used to lie awake in the evenings and just be like so conscious that I was getting a bump. Um, and at points would kind of quite like, like the fact that I was managing to grow something inside of me. But then at the same time, you then look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, wow, that is just not what I look like. Like, how do I look like that? And I think particularly now, um, kind of, yeah, 35 weeks pregnant and just really tired a lot of the time, which just doesn't work for me as someone who's not only recovered from an eating disorder, but just someone who does what I do for a living. Like, I don't, I don't like not having energy. Um, so yeah, I think for me, looking back over the last yeah 35 weeks, well obviously less than 35 weeks, I didn't know the whole time, but it has it, the challenges have been quite huge. So I went to my midwife um, in my first appointment, and although they'd kind of flagged the pregnancy as a risk because of having an eating disorder, um, 
they still have to talk through kind of the do's and don'ts with what you eat. They have to talk about like, oh, you've got to put on this amount of weight, but you can't oh, put on this wow. much weight. Yeah. And in, like unintentionally, it does feel a little bit like they're enforcing some of those <sighs> beliefs. So you're mm. kind of then sitting with these things like, am I not eating this because I can't eat it because it will hurt the baby? Or am I not eating it because of the eating disorder? And it, I, for like, honestly, for a few months, I was like having to question that in myself quite a bit and be like, am I doing this for the right reasons? Or am I just doing it as an excuse? Um, and then obviously when you are pregnant, you also get weighed quite a bit more. And for me, I had to get weighed on like a two week basis because I'm under a consultant led appointment, which is something that I'm just not used to as well. So kind of going into that environment where you know you're being judged on your weight. And it's it's really hard because you, you know your weight's gonna go up, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that mentally you're okay. So trying to then really communicate what's going on is, is really, really challenging in places because you're like, I know that I look fine and I'm pregnant, but actually there's still all of this other stuff that I'm trying to navigate. Um, but that said, I think I, I do feel like I've been really lucky with some of the support. So originally I wasn't able to access the mental health support um, because I wasn't underweight, which I at the time was it was so frustrating again. And I was kind of like, this is ridiculous. Like I've I'm obviously not underweight because I've got a baby growing in me. Um, but then um, I kind of in my second trimester, they then said, actually, we're going to re-refer you back to the perinatal mental health team. So now I do get kind of a weekly therapy session um, and get kind of a lot more checks, obviously, from a consultant, which, which is really, really helpful. And it helps a lot with kind of processing things, a lot of the fear aspect. Um, but it's, it's scary. And I think one of the scariest things is, like to sound really negative we we know that kind of relapse rates for people with eating disorders when they're pregnant in the aftermath is in like I think it's around 67 percent which is just so so high mm. and so I think for me there's I, I know that I won't ever get unwell again but there is this kind of undertone of fear and particularly for my family and husband as well like mm. actually how am I going to cope afterwards at the moment like it's it feels arguably easier because I have a baby that I need to kind of keep eating for. But actually afterwards, when there is a lot of uncertainty, when there's so much emotion around actually of what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Like I know, obviously it's very like current and very personal um, and it's lovely to hear, like it's really encouraging in lots of ways, but obviously, yeah, I think you summed up really clearly there, the sort of the challenges and the things that make it, so much harder when you're also living with an eating disorder um, and it's encouraging to hear that you've been able to get mental health support yeah. I guess that points to some very welcome changes and investment in perinatal mental health support um, although we know there's still a long way to go for kind yeah. of making sure that people don't fall through those gaps um, but yeah that's really encouraging I think it is I, I, I do I am really grateful and I'm going to sound really ungrateful now but I am very grateful for the support I've got but I do sometimes think I guess firstly like it a lot of people don't get that support when they're pregnant but also I I, I think what I struggle with is I if I'd had honestly if I'd had proper treatment kind of back in the day I probably wouldn't need the support now and I think that's what's really frustrating because you're kind of like actually why why now am I able to access this when actually I probably could have done with this six years ago, but wasn't able to then. So I think that's my biggest contention at the moment is like, it, it just seems really, really, like really unfair in some respects. Of course. And it's something we've covered at the centre so, <laughs> so, so, so many times. 
that, um, and, and we covered it in some recent work um, by Nick O'Shea that I'll link to, um, that we are stuck in a system which is all um, funneled towards the most kind of critical crisis point. And obviously we need crisis care, like crisis care is absolutely vital, but we're putting all our resources in there and everyone is getting kind of funneled to that place rather than being supported earlier on. Um, yeah. which, which would both save in many years, in many cases, years of suffering for people and also would cost a lot less. Mm. Um, and it's kind of like there, there needs to be a complete rethink of how we deliver and how we fund services. Um, because, yeah, as you say, it, it just makes no sense. Essentially, if we gave people the help they needed when they needed it, rather than in some cases, you know, 10 years down the line, we wouldn't be seeing this come through. And that's and really tragic um it's just frustrating I think yeah just the lack of understanding and focus on prevention that could save just yeah millions of pounds but also so many lives exactly exactly um it's been really lovely to talk to you and what I wanted to end on is you know we've talked quite a lot about um there's obviously a lot of joys in campaigning and doing something that you completely believe in and 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 using that anger to fuel change but also it obviously comes with a lot of challenges you know hearing hearing a lot of stories where people are really struggling um and you know obviously as you say like managing your own mental health and um I just wondered if you wanted to share kind of what you do to help your own well-being um and to help yourself kind of keep well yeah good question um and I still don't think I've got a hundred percent sorted yet um I don't think any of us have. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, when I first started campaigning, I definitely, I definitely thought I didn't need to do all the additional stuff, if I'm honest. Um, and yeah, just kind of focused and fixated a lot on my campaigning and a lot of kind of trying to sort everyone else out without really kind of setting any boundaries in place. So I think something I had to learn in the first couple of years was actually I, I need to have boundaries around kind of work time, um, particularly around kind of responding to people. So prior to getting kind of pregnant actually um I was very good at not replying to people after kind of 6 p.m if they messaged me on something like Instagram or Twitter um and would make sure that I only responded to stuff like that in the working day just because again I wanted to make sure that actually I had that kind of yeah I guess that space to process things probably outside of work as well Mm -hmm. um arguably some of my boundary setting has gone probably slightly out the window um over the last couple of months I probably still use work and working too much as a bit of a coping mechanism in some respects um which yeah I I don't think it's always the healthiest way to deal with it but it's something obviously that I'm kind of working through um at the moment actually with my therapy team so on that I do I do have therapy so um I used to do uh kind of therapy weekly prior to the pandemic then did probably for the first six months of the pandemic and then was kind of ready to kind of finish it. Um, and then now obviously back in therapy, doing mainly stuff around pregnancy, but also a lot of stuff on like triggers and kind of having that space to offload a lot of the time on like stuff that I'm talking about at work and things like that, which is really helpful. Yeah. Um, I also journal quite a lot. Um, and for me, journaling, I don't know what it is about journaling. It just really, really helps kind of getting everything down on paper. I, I think I struggle to some extent to communicate like what I'm feeling on a day-to-day basis. So actually having that space to journal and just write stuff down, kind of processing it really, really helps. Um, And then I do have certain things that I do kind of every single week. So that could be 
like making sure like one day a week I always have a slower morning um even in like the working week I try to particularly if I'm working um in an evening so we'll kind of yeah kind of get up maybe a bit later um maybe have like a slow morning with a coffee and kind of sit and think about things and maybe go for a walk something like that which is important um I do kind of go outside quite a bit in the day um so yeah just getting outside kind of having that space in the sunshine um I go to church every week which is kind of kind of a grounding space for me but also something that's important for my own well-being um and then yeah always try and have something nice booked in I think so much of the time when when you do campaigning work whilst I absolutely love what I do and I feel so lucky I can do it there are moments when you just need a breather from it and it can become like totally consuming so yeah having kind of a couple of grounding points within each week just helps me to remain a little bit kind of steady with it as well um and then one final thing actually I do I do often when I've had like a challenging like workshop or have had challenging conversations with people um in those moments I also do a lot of writing around them um not to kind of share stuff but just I think again it helps me to kind of get it down on paper and to be like actually practically like how how can I move on from this or how can that individual move on from it as well which really helps but I think it's hard and I think it's I honestly think it's a trial and error thing I'm not one of those people that can have a bath once a week like from us I'm just not a bath person but even like but like those kind of like self-care activities it's just not me so I think like for me my self-care probably looks so different to other people's but it just is what works in that space 100% and I, I think that's the issue is, is self-care is, is about kind of what works for the self right so it's going to look yeah. really different for everyone else and definitely no one said that the rule on self-care was it had to be a bath because I, I agree I think a lot of people are in that same, are in the same boat <laughs> yeah. with you in that um, and it's interesting because actually it reminds me of, of chatting to Poppy German about this um, a couple of months ago on our podcast and you know talking about the way that self-care and what kind of looking after our mental health that that will change in different seasons and like you know, as you're saying for you or, you know, being pregnant or depending on the work that you're doing um, for each of us, I guess, I guess it will look different at different points in life. So it is, I think there's always going to be trial and error there, isn't there? Yeah. About, um, about what works for us. But look, hey, I could carry on speaking to you forever, um, but it's been so great to catch up. It's so good to hear more of your story. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and we'll put links to more support and to Hope's work. Um, so thank you. Cool. No, thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and just a reminder that we rely on donations to fight for equality in mental health so we would love it if you could donate at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate take care and see you next time